She's like, do you ever just cut out Scott's rants? Do you ever, do you ever just tell him that this is stop talking? We're never gonna air this. I didn't say that. Hey everyone, and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore, and this is week whatever in quarantine. We're all just living in our houses all the time now. Thanks to my co-host for joining me via the interwebs, Bailey Perkins. How are you? Hey, everybody. I am well. Thanks for being here. Scott Melson. Hello, sir. What's up, man? How are you? I'm well. Thanks for your service in the healthcare world yet again. Another week. I uh, I have two friends now who believe they have the COVID. They're not in Oklahoma, but I'm just waiting for all of my friends in healthcare for that to happen. Um, God bless you all. Yeah, I'm trying to decide if I've had it already or if I'm going to get it. At are some you point. are you eligible to get one of those antibody tests? Um, I probably could. Yeah, I probably could. Um, I should look into that. <laughs> yeah, you should. So let's do quick uh, two quick announcements and then and then let's get into the coronavirus update um listeners as i mentioned last week as a teaser i'm going to go ahead and reiterate to mark your calendars for civics con on may 29th i had a meeting with our planning committee today we are getting closer and hope to have the website and registration launched next week very exciting we've got a bunch of guests lined up it's going to be super rad secondly um for those of you who may not have seen it on our email list, for one, you should sign up for our email list. I don't spam you. I send like maybe one email a month usually uh, or on our social media, uh, which you should also follow us on. Um, I uh, Let's Fix This is making a plea that everyone register to vote absentee. Now you've heard us talk about this for a couple of years now anyway. But honestly, has there ever been a more appropriate time to vote from the comfort of your own home in the middle of a viral pandemic? I heard the president talk about it and how like how just much it gets corrupted and like how easy it is to just fake it and like how you should never be allowed to vote absentee unless you happen to be the president who wants to vote in the uh, Florida election. But you live in Washington, D.C. Is that what he did? Yeah, that's what he did, and they asked him. They asked him about it in a press conference, and it was pretty funny. He was like, "No, well, it was very, it was very, it's very good, but it's very, it's very important. It's very, it was different, though. It's very different. <laughs> my my vote's different. No, it was funny because they said they were talking about vote by mail, and he was like, "No, no, no, I didn't do vote by mail. I did absentee. It's, it's a totally different thing. It's like it's literally the exact same thing. Right? Yeah, um, yeah. Voting absentee, yeah. vote by mail, vote from home, whatever you want to call it." Tomato, tomato. Mm-hmm. I have actually, I've, I've done it, I think, twice um, here, right? Like Oklahoma, one of the great things about Oklahoma's uh, uh, election system is that you don't have to have a reason to vote absentee, right? Like you can request the ballot, you get the ballot, you fill it out, you get it notarized. Uh, Andy will come notarize it for you, I bet. Um, aren't you a notary now? I am a notary, but I want to speak to that. So that is true. So in Oklahoma, most... Most people, anyone's eligible to vote absentee. Most absentee voters have to have their ballot notarized. However, um, from my reading of the law, it definitely seems like, um, well, for one, it's not in the law 
that that we have to have an absentee or have to have an, a notarization component. I think that's just an election board rule. And so I believe that the election board secretary, Paul Xerox, is able to waive that rule under an election emergency declaration, which he's done for some other things, right? Um, and uh, so I put this out last night in our email and social media, and several folks have responded and said, you know, I called the election board today to ask about this, and they told me it's in, it's a law, it's in statute, that would require legislative action. Now, I have looked through the Oklahoma statutes. I cannot find where that's the case. It definitely seems like it's a, it is up to the election board. Uh, they didn't cite, they didn't cite a statute. No, but I mean, also like most people, like if, if you work the election board and you say, Hey, someone called about this and the, whoever says, Oh no, we can't. That's the law. They just, I think we all just assume, well, one, we assume that a lot of like agency rules are law. They're not. They're rules, right? Administrative rules are a thing that don't necessarily require legislative action, particularly in you know a pandemic in a state of emergency. So, um, well, and either way, for our listeners, this is a great opportunity for them to reach out to their elected leaders, their senator, and their house member to add that extra pressure, so that either the legislature can take that up because they still have. Um, a month to do business or about a month and a half actually at this point, or they can have conversations and lift that pressure up to the election board to make that change. That's exactly right. Now, I, I mean, I think if, if any listeners, anyone can find it in statute where it says that it's, it's actually a statutory issue, please let me know, hit us up on Twitter at let's fix this. Okay. Or send us an email. Um, podcast at let's fix this okay.org. Um, I, I would stand corrected and I will correct you next week, but so far I've not been able to find it. So um, anyway, elections.ok.gov or ok.gov slash elections. Either website gets you there. Um, go ahead, go to the online voter tool, sign up. I have put a video, a how-to video on our Facebook page. It's on Twitter. It's on our YouTube channel. Um, and it was in the email I sent last night. If you're not sure how to do it, watch the video. I, I did a screen capture the whole way through it and, and re-signed up myself. And Andy, and one recommendation I would give to the listeners after they sign up, it's great to send yourself like a um, reminder notice on January 2nd of every year because you have to reapply every calendar year. So just because you do this now doesn't mean that you have absentee ballots for life, which would be awesome. Um, but for Oklahoma, you have to reapply every calendar year. And so I try to do that um, right after the first to make sure that I get ballots for every election that I'm eligible to participate in through that calendar year. Yeah, because you get the ballots early, which gives you more time to actually read them and kind of think about things, which is, I think, often helpful if there's races on there, issues that I'm not immediately familiar with. Um, also, you don't have to vote absentee. So I receive absentee ballots for, I've done it for the last couple of years, but I still like to vote in person. And so- It's a good cheat sheet. Right, I yeah. With you. Yeah. Now you can print off, you know, sample ballots and all that stuff too, but I like the reminder. Um, and both my wife and I usually get it. Um, and there's been cases where I received an absentee ballot I planned to vote in person, but then I had to leave town um, on like the day before election day. 
And I, you know, was like, oh man. And so I knew that as long as I got it postmarked by that date, it'd be fine. And so I quickly voted absentee. It's just a nice backup. So when you, this is a note, um, cause somebody recently, somebody recently reached out to me on Twitter asking this question. You just, when you get there to vote in person, um, if you had an absentee ballot, right? Like if you did this and you decided I want to, you know, like Andy, I want to go vote in person. Um, you will have to sign an affidavit at the polling place. And basically you're just, all you're doing is signing your name and saying, yeah, I had an absentee ballot. I didn't use it. I swear under penalty of perjury that I'm not voting twice. Um, and you sign it and then you'll vote. Yeah. Uh, no voter fraud. Let's not, that's super rare. Not really a thing. Let's not make it a thing. All right. On that note, uh, man, what a week. This week we saw the legislature suing the governor. We saw a reopen Oklahoma rally held at the Capitol and Penn Square Mall. Right, yeah. Um, I saw several people joke, is this a give me liberty and give me death rally? Uh, which I thought was particularly witty. And so, as has been the case in the last few weeks, the coronavirus pandemic continues to dominate the news cycle as well as most of our lives and our psyches. So let's start there and then we'll move into candidate filing and, and this crazy lawsuit within our government. Um, Dr. Melson, I'm going to go to you first for this. Give us a, a, a quick update on where we're at today. Yeah. So um, I think, I think, in some respects, cautious optimism. Um, cautious optimism is is a reasonable place to be in terms of where Oklahoma is in our in our coronavirus epidemic right now. Um, you know, the governor, um, if you've been watching his press conferences, he is saying um, a lot <laughs> that you know we flatten the curve, like we flatten the curve, we flatten the curve, like. Um, and there are ways in which that's, there are ways in which that's true. Um, you know, there are the IHME models, which a lot of people have been you know, relying on seem to indicate that, that we've successfully, um, started to flatten things out a little bit. Um, there's, uh, some internal models that some of the hospital systems are using that would, that would suggest similar, a similar pattern. So I think in terms of, in terms of flattening the curve is, you know, to, to use the parlance that we've come accustomed to. I think there's reason to think that we have either done that or at least started to do that. Right. Um, one thing that I think is incredibly important for all of us to remember as we're talking about that flattening the curve does not mean like we beat the Rona, right? Like it's over. We beat it. She's all done. Like let's get back after it. This is more like if you were falling out of a plane, right? and you opened a parachute, um, that would slow down your fall and you probably wouldn't die if everything went according to plan, which is good. However, if halfway down, you took the parachute off and were like, yep, parachute slowed my fall down, life is good, and then you took it off, you would quickly fall to your death. So um, I think that's a, a reasonably good analogy for where we are now. Flattening the curve means that we have hopefully beaten, avoided, or at the very least forestalled a crisis. Um, but we're still left with the underlying problem. But 
you know, in terms of hospital capacity, hospital capacity seems to be good. ICU capacity seems to be good. We seem to have, you know, um, access to PPE is improving. Access to critical care supplies um, seem to be in a, in a reasonably good place. So, yeah, I think cautious optimism in terms of where we are in the state of the epidemic is is appropriate. Right. I mean, I it's it's like what you said. It is avoiding a crisis, but in some cases, in some scenarios, it may not even mean any fewer deaths or hospitalizations it just means they're spread out over a longer period and and i was i'm sure as you saw last night scott nate silver from 538 was tweeting some analysis about this and it looks like while in many models kind of predicted a steep incline and then a steep decline in the number of cases or number of hospitalizations the decline is not near as quick. So it like it ramped up and it is in in areas where it's they're kind of over the hump on and the hump being the worst day, but not not over that the the recovery is much slower, both in terms of, of healthcare and in terms of economic recovery, is happening much more slowly than what people might expect. And that's I think gonna take some adjustment like so this this all went from zero to 60 really quick it's going to go from 60 back to zero over many 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 months right and and the thing is is you could still have had right like you still could have had the the steep incline and the steep decline i think what's happened is that you had this really really steep incline and it was arrested right but like at the point where it's been arrested, it's going to be a slow gradual because like you said, people are still getting sick. The reason it's so much slower, right? Is because instead of having everybody get sick and then everybody either dies or gets better at the same time, right? What happens is a bunch of people are getting sick and then you reach a steady state, right? And it takes a long time for that steady state to go down, right? So you have people that are coming into the hospital with coronavirus, but also people that are going out, right? You have testing supplies going up, testing supplies going like, you know, supplies going up and then more people coming in to be tested. Like it's this kind of flux, this homeostasis that's going to go down much slower rather than like, oh shit. And then like, okay, <laughs> everything comes back down to normal. As Dr. Fauci has been saying, it's not a, a light switch and it's not going right. to. Right. right. And I, uh, I did an interview with Scott Mitchell the other day for his Mitchell Talks Facebook thing. And, uh, you know, he referenced that I used to work in the HIV field and, ask how this compared. I'm like, okay, first of all, it's very different. And the disease is very different and the transmission modes are very different. But if you want to draw some comparisons uh, or some parallels, I think how those some of those waves have worked makes sense, right? Where HIV is still with us and it we don't we have treatment, we don't have a cure or or you know vaccine or anything. And so we still have 30 to 40,000 infections in the United States every year. Those numbers have have declined over time, but it has been a very gradual decline. It is not near as steep, right? This is not like down in the 1% to 2% range. This is still a big deal. And so the fact that it's been 30 years since the peak of HIV um, and we're still dealing with relatively the same number of cases, new cases per year as we did even 10 years ago, um, is a a sobering reminder, right? That that this was still happened. There's still, I mean, we still have thirty thousand people that die every year from HIV, and we've had that for thirty years. Like, and so I think with coronavirus, we need to start 
accepting and adjusting to a new normal. Agree. Agree. Um, you know, talking a little bit more about like kind of Oklahoma's like response to the epidemic and like what that looks like moving forward. Um, you know, kind of, I guess I, I put in our, you know, our outline here, call this kind of the state of play in Oklahoma. Like what's, what are we doing right now? So the governor has been talking about how we've, you know, we've increased our testing capacity. We're testing more and more people. And that's true. Um, so we're testing now on average. Now this is a very rough estimate and I'll tell you how I came up with this. Um, the, sh- the, in terms of knowing how many people we're testing every day, no one knows, right? Like as far as I can tell on Twitter, on the health department website, on the uh, governor's executive order reports, nowhere does it say we tested this many people today, we tested this many people yesterday, etc. Um, what it does tell you though is each day it gives you the cumulative number of tests done to date. So I took like, for instance, the number that were reported yesterday, subtracted it from the number that were reported on Wednesday, and assume that that is the number that were tested on Wednesday, right? There's some, you know, there's going to be some fuzziness there for a lot of technical reasons, but I feel like that's a reasonable proxy. And I did that for every two day period looking back over the last two weeks and came up with an average of 1,440 tests per day that is going up. Um, the highest was two or the lowest was 265. The highest was 2,750. I think that a, a rough estimate of about 1500 tests per day lines up with what we're seeing reflected in the rest of the data also. So, um, that could be off, you know, by, you know, it could be off by several hundred in either direction, but I, I think that that's a reasonably good estimate. So about 1500 a day, um, we have currently, about 86, a hair under 87,000 tests available. Now, one thing that's in the executive order reports, these also are publicly available. You can find them if you go to the health department and look under the news section. Um, the health department is saying that we have 86,603 tests available. However, testing supplies are 41,327. Um, that's obviously a difference of like about half. So I don't really know what the difference is between those two numbers. Um, so whether we could test, you know, if we needed to test 40,000 people today and tomorrow, could we test 40,000 or could we test 80,000? I'm not, not sure. Um, but that's, that's what's reported there. Um, we have started doing serology testing. So, um, testing for serology is another way to think is, is another term for antibody testing. So, um, the health department, uh, is, testing um, swaths of a thousand people, I think, at a time. They're randomly selected. It's supposed to be a random, uh, a representative sample of the population. And they're using an antibody test to try and determine if these people have had coronavirus, um, have antibodies to coronavirus, and therefore might have some degree of immunity. Um, Chris Castile had a piece in the Oklahoman today talking about that first round of testing. Really all it says was that we've started and we've tested the first thousand people and that there were very few positives. It doesn't say what very few means. It doesn't say how many there were. It also doesn't really tell anything about the characteristics of the test. Um, I'll tell you that most, there are three, as of right now, I believe three FDA approved serology tests um, on the market being used around the country. There's something like 85 non-FDA approved serology tests that are out and about that different states and municipalities are using to try and help determine prevalence of the disease in their communities. I believe the one that Oklahoma is using is one of the ones that has is not yet FDA approved. And I say not yet because I don't, you know, there have been some isolated reports of like these kind of like uh 
you know, parking lot tech companies like selling antibody kits for 200 bucks out of the trunk of their car. Um, the FDA is moving quite quickly to try and crack down on those to, so people don't get scammed. I don't have any reason to think that the state of Oklahoma is, is using one of those. I think we're using a serology test that was developed uh, in Norman. The accuracy of the ones that have been FDA approved is, is quite high. And I don't think there's any particular reason to think that the one we're using in Oklahoma would be any different than that. So um, there is antibody testing going on, and I believe the plan is to is to scale that up further. Lastly, and this is a number that's important um, that we'll talk about here in a few minutes, um, is what is the positivity rate of our testing here in Oklahoma? And it's about 7%. So what that means is when you look at all the tests that we've done and you look at how many are positive, um, about 7% of the total number of tests we've done have been positive. Um, that compares with about a 55% positivity rate um, in New York. So something like 50% of tests in New York and New Jersey uh, are positive. Um, in, I want to say in like Detroit, uh, Detroit, I want to say it's like 30%. Um, in Seattle, it was quite high. There's other places, uh, Florida, New Orleans, around the country that are suffering kind of more severe outbreaks um, where the positivity is well over 20%. Nationally, our positivity is about 20%. So Oklahoma is below the national average in terms of how many of our tests are turning up positive. Uh, that is definitely a good thing. I think 7% is probably still high and reflects some sort of, you know, some degree of bias. Um, if you were to take that 7% and apply it to the population of Oklahoma and say that, right, 7% of the population has coronavirus, that would be, you know, something like 300,000 infections as opposed to the, like, what, 2,000-ish, uh, 20, how many, how many do we have today? I didn't even, I didn't see what our total positive was today. Uh, I didn't catch it either. Yeah. I think about that number though. Our total total positive cases is two thousand three hundred and fifty seven. So that would mean that we're underestimating we're underestimating the the prevalence of the prevalence of the disease by you know about two hundred and ninety eight thousand cases. Um, and so there's uh, there's a lot of good reasons I think to think that seven percent is still too high, but does reflect that our outbreak is in a much better place right now, at least than some other cities and states across the country. Man, so that's, well, that's a lot of data. And that's really sobering, right? Like, and I think, and I'm sure our listeners have kind of been tracking this with us in similar manner. I, it sounds like, to summarize, right? We are testing more, but still not testing near enough. Um, yeah, so I, I, I would 100% say that's accurate. Um, you know, one of the open questions is, like, what is a level of testing that we really need, right? And so I think, yeah. Well, and and I mean, a related question, I think, is what is the level of testing we need to move forward, right? Like, if we're going to reopen things, what does moving forward look like? Now, you and I both, I know, listened to an episode of The Weeds about this that was very in the weeds. I had to rewind several times to, like, re-listen to components um, and I think, I feel like most people, including our leadership and stuff, are starting to look at the future and like, okay, well, we've been doing this for a while. You know, it feels like we're supposed to be around the peak or something now. When are we going to get out of this? And it's, the answer is not good, but. And I think it's a good time to to segue into how this connects to 
the president's announcement yesterday um, of him wanting to have guidance to states on phases of opening government. And so with this conversation of we're testing more, but are we testing enough to have the right information to guide us on when we need to make decisions about when do we fall within these different threshold categories to be safe to move closer to, I guess, normal life and reopening government methodically and slowly. I'm making air quotes that the uh, our listeners can't see. Um, oh, we can see them, Bailey. <laughs> but um, yeah, Scott, I would love to to hear your thoughts on on what what you said means in connection to how our leaders move forward in their decision on methodically reopening government or business yeah. and the economy. I mean, it's, so I guess the, the first thing I would say is, you know, I mean, I think, um, I think the first thing I would say is that this is the, the kind of the magnitude of this question, right? Like, where do we go from here? Um, I don't really know if it can be overstated in terms of how big of a question it is, how important a question it is, um, and how hard of a question it is, right? Like we are we are dealing with something that I think is literally um, quoting a you know doing a doing a Chris Chris from uh, Parks and Rec, a literally unprecedented um, in our lifetime. So that's the first thing, right? Um, so the idea that anyone like knows what we should do next, I think is, is there's ideas, um, many of which have merit. I'm, we're going to talk about three of them specifically. Um, and I don't claim to know which one is the right one. I have some thoughts, but like, this is a hard question. Andy, what were you gonna say? I, I was going to say, not only is this unprecedented in our lifetimes, it is, in my opinion, it is unprecedented in, in anyone's lifetime because the whole circumstances are different, right? The Spanish flu in 1918 happened more than a hundred years ago, right? Like we didn't have the internet. We barely had automobiles. People were not driving around, right? Like we had way fewer people in way less dense situations and it was still terrible, right? Like there's more people, more compact, more mobile, all that stuff. Also we have the internet, which is great in lots of ways and terrible in lots of ways, right? And so it, we're also in the middle of a, of a war. like, And so there was even that, if that's our closest example, is not a good parallel. Like it's, well, and the Center on Budget says, well, according to Nick Johnson, uh, who's the vice president for the Center on Budget, um, made a graphic that says that um, the COVID-19 state budget shortfalls could be the largest on record. And so it shows that like the impact um, of COVID-19 is going to hit harder than the 2001 recession and even the Great Recession. So that's oh, yeah. truly unprecedented. Um, so in terms of in terms of what do we do? Like, where do we go from here? Um, I think, Bailey, uh, I think you're right. Like, it is reasonable to kind of start with um, I'm not even going to dignify it with like the plan that the the Trump administration released yesterday. Um, and that is not entirely meant to be a dig at President Trump, but it's just like um, it's not a plan, right? It's basically saying to governors like you guys decide what you should do for your states, which is their constitutional um, right and privilege anyway. Um, 
and here's some criteria you can think about as you're making these decisions. So um, this is what they're calling their state or regional gating criteria. Um, they're giving you, you can base it on some combination of symptoms, cases, and hospital capacity. So essentially they're looking for states to have a downward trajectory of influenza-like illnesses reported within a 14-day period or a downward trajectory of COVID-like syndrome cases that are reported within a 14-day period. So that's the symptomatic criteria. There's the case-based criteria, which is a downward trajectory of documented cases within a 14-day period or a downward trajectory of positive tests. And this is really important, a downward trajectory of positive tests as a percentage of total tests done within a 14-day period, right? So you can't just have fewer positives because you're testing fewer people. You have to have either the same, like a flat number of tests or an increasing number of tests. And what you want to see is that the percentage of positives, like the percentage of like positive tests as a percent of the total done, that is going down over 14 days, not the actual number of cases itself, right? Um, and then the third thing is hospitals have the capacity to treat all patients without crisis care. Um, and then uh, a testing regimen in place for healthcare workers. So that's what we got yesterday from the administration. Um, the podcast that Andy referenced earlier from the weeds was um, uh, the weeds podcast by Vox media hosted by uh, Ezra Klein and Matt Iglesias. Um, it's a fantastic show. If you're like wonky and into like super nerdy stuff, like white papers and budget analyses, it's a great podcast that comes out twice a week that you can listen to. Um, uh, but they had a a very sobering episode this week where they looked at three, um, I four technically, but really three plans for kind of what do we do next. So one is from uh, the American Enterprise Institute, which is a conservative leaning think tank. Um, one's from the Center for American Progress, which is a kind of more progressive think tank. Um, there's a study or a plan that Harvard, Harvard's Center for Public Ethics, I think, uh, the Safra Center, they released a plan that's really very, very similar to the Center for American Progress plan. And then the third one that's a little bit out of left field, but it's very intriguing, is a plan by an economist named Paul Romer, who uh, is uh, he's a Nobel laureate. Um, really, I think, widely acknowledged as a brilliant guy. He's a professor at NYU, and he is, he'll say this on his blog where he's publishing about the model. He's not an epidemiologist, like he's not a public health expert. He is a data and modeling expert, though, um, and he, he ran some really interesting simulations um, about testing. So a little bit of background, and we'll try, this is not the weeds, so I'll try not to get too too dense here. And I want to be clear that like this, none of this is like my original work. I am uh, piggybacking and hijacking off of uh, hard work done by Matt and Ezra and their, uh, their researches. Um, but these plans really look at kind of three phases. So phase one being like flatten the curve and raise the line, right? So flatten the curve, we've all heard about. This is where you slow down the rate of new cases and try to make sure that hospital capacity doesn't get overwhelmed. Raising the line is physically increasing hospital capacity, right? We're trying to get to where we can take care of more people safely and effectively. Um, and in all three plans, the American Enterprise Institute, the CAP plan, and Paul Rumor's plan, essentially they say kind of a, some version of what we're doing, right? Really aggressive social distancing, people working from home, really going out to do things that are essential, um, and then massively increasing production and acquisition of PPE supplies, testing supplies, hospital capacity. The big difference is that Center for American Progress actually says if you really want to break the epidemic um, and break the, the, the 
kind of the trend, you need a national 45 day stay at home order um, that they would have argued really should have started on April the 5th. And so this would be like the president coming out and issuing an emergency order, like similar to what Mayor Holt and Mayor Bynum have done here in Oklahoma City, what some governors have done across the country, but starting like everywhere across the country, shelter in place. Can can the president make that kind of order or is the is our federalism society or whatever it's called federalist system prohibitive of that uh, uh andy i if you'd watched uh, the president's press conference earlier this week you would have known that the authority of the president is total it's total it's absolute <laughs> president can do whatever he wants <laughs> you know but this that is a great point and it's an interesting time of teaching us where the lines of federalism lie you know right, like it is. where authority is because the answer is no right he doesn't actually have that authority so i mean hashtag not a lawyer i don't think that he does however i think the president can do a lot of things under an emergency declaration right like when there's a national emergency i think that the president can maybe do some things that he or she can't do otherwise um and similar to what the legislature did here, like if the president was going to invoke some emergency powers, it would to do something like that to, to invoke a national stay at home order. I would honestly be a little bit surprised if the if the Congress didn't back him up on it, um, because there seems to be an acknowledgement from most people in most places um, that that's what's necessary, because I mean, that's essentially what everyone is doing anyway. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting question in terms of like the separation, you know, not even the separation of powers, but like the, the federalist kind of system that we have here, what authority the president does or doesn't have to do that. But um, that's what they'd recommend. Well, and I wonder too, if there is hypothetically should, you know, the, the president want to make a decision um, that intently uh, with a stay at home mandate. Um, and Congress back him up. Typically, Congress is able to get states to oblige by the um, the carrot and the stick. Um, so let's right. say they were working on an additional stimulus package. Right. They could right. put some qualifications saying uh, you have to oblige to this order in order to receive these extra dollars yeah. for whatever the case is. If it's you know through the PPP plan or for whatever um, the the Congress and, and the uh, president could do that. So I'm, I think there is mechanisms to try to put teeth behind making that happen. But is the president going to use that level of authority is, is very doubtful. <laughs> yeah. Right. I think that's exactly probably exactly what happened is they'd say like, yeah, if you would like hospitals, your hospitals to get extra money from the feds, then you'll comply with the state of home order. But where these plans get really interesting is in phase two, right? So phase two is like, how do we start emerging from lockdown? How do we start kind of trying to reopen businesses? How do we start trying to kind of restart parts of the economy? And I think this is an interesting place to focus on because that's kind of where we find ourselves in Oklahoma right now, or at least that's the discussions that we're having at the at the state level. So 
first the uh the plan the plan put forward by the american enterprise institute which like i said is, is more of a conservative leaning a conservative leaning think tank um so for them phase two you they, they would say that a state um or a municipality but they're, they're really talking about states here a state can interface to um when they have met certain criteria so one um sustained reduction in cases for at least 14 days right and local hospitals are safely able to treat all patients requiring hospitalization without recording to crisis standards of care. And the capacity exists in the state to test all people with COVID-19 symptoms, along with the state's capacity to conduct active monitoring of all confirmed cases and their contacts, right? A couple of other criteria that they lay out um, is nationally the ability to conduct 750,000 tests per week. Uh, they want to see that state's and uh, states and cities have the ability to immediately double their ICU capacity and immediately double their ventilator capacity. They also want testing to be in place to determine immune status. Now, um, <laughs> a lot of this, if you've been listening to the governor's press conferences, a lot of this may sound familiar. Uh, the governor had a press conference today. I wasn't able to see it. I read some of the excerpts, Bailey. I know that you were able to watch it. Um, but he seemed to be focusing a lot on one, we have the capacity to test everybody who has coronavirus-like symptoms. Two, we have surge planning in place with uh, hospital capacity, specifically at Integris Baptist Medical Center and Integris Deacus Medical Center combined with OU and Mercy, right? So there's um, surge capacity in place. Three, um, he keeps talking about how we flatten the curve and we see the curve going down. He's really not focusing on number of cases though, right? When he says we flatten the curve, he continually is looking at the number of hospitalizations and ICU admissions, which is a bad metric in my opinion, uh, because they lag the their 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 lagging indicators, right? So um, the number of hospitalizations and ICU admissions reflects where the epidemic was probably two weeks ago, not where it is now. Um, um, and then, you know, the American Enterprise Institute plan does not give a recommendation for how many tests a state should be able to conduct. They talk about how many tests we should be able to do nationally. Um, if you took the American Enterprise Institute's, you know, 750,000 750, tests per week um, that they recommend, and you were to say, okay, like, what is that? What does that come out to? What does that come out to in Oklahoma? Well, we can take the population of the U.S. The population of the U.S. is 328.2 million people, right? So if we do 750,000 tests, right, and we divide it by 328, what does that give us? That gives us 2,286 tests per million people. Make sense? Say 2,000 2, tests per million people? 2,286 tests per million people okay. at the national level per week. Okay? That's what they're recommending. Right. So in Oklahoma, we have 3.9 million people. So that would be 8,917 tests per week. Um, you know, at roughly 1500 a day, uh, times seven, right. That's 10,500 tests a week. So I think if you were to ask the governor, <clears throat> my, you know, and I'm, I'm not friends with the governor. We don't, we don't hang out, but I would guess that this American enterprise Institute plan is what the governor is looking at when he's thinking about whether or not Oklahoma is meeting the quote unquote data driven criteria 
to start reopening our economy. And he would say that we've met all of those standards um, other than a sustained reduction in cases for at least 14 days. Does that make sense? Yeah. The, the issue here um, is so I, uh, one of the main authors of this plan is a guy named Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who was the first FDA, FDA commissioner for president Trump. Um, and he's a really, really sharp guy. So he's an, he's an economist by training um, who then went to medical school and did an internal medicine residency um, and has a, had a long and pretty distinguished career in public service. Like he's a, he's a sharp guy who's well-respected on both sides of the aisle. He's definitely a conservative, definitely a, a, a free market guy. Um, I listened to another interview with him uh, about an hour long interview with Ezra Klein, where they talked about this plan in a lot more detail. Um, and a couple of things that this plan kind of assumes. So one, this is not a plan that takes us back to quote unquote normal, right? It's very explicit where like, if this, if you, if this is kind of this, if this is the steps you're taking and this is what you go for, it is envisioning that by the fall of 2020, you'll be operating at about an 80% economy, right? Like an, like 80% of pre COVID economy, which sounds pretty good. That's like a pretty severe depression, right? Like an 80% economy is, is like bad. Like that's like no one I think would argue that that is like a place you want to be in. So that's one thing. It does not get us back to where we should be or where we want to be. I should say Two, this plan assumes continued isolation, um, of particularly vulnerable populations. So people that are immune compromised, people that are older, um, people that have underlying chronic health conditions that put them at, um, that put them at significant risk for coronavirus infection. This plan assumes that those people either through recommendations from local governments or of their own accord and on the advice of their physician are going to continue to self isolate essentially indefinitely. And that's a, that's a significant portion of our population. Like, right. And this, that's a lot of elderly folks. That's, there's a lot of folks in America who have different medical conditions that make them susceptible. And I think we downplay um, how many people truly fall into that category that are in our workforce. Right. right. Um, and, and again, this is not me making this assumption. Like if you listen to Dr. Gottlieb talk about writing this plan, he will it, like he'll say like, no, that's one of their underlying assumptions. So um one, it's an 80% economy. Two, it's assuming that a large percentage of people are going to continue to be in isolation. Three, and this is where it gets like real sticky, this plan also assumes that there will continue to be more outbreaks, more hotspots. And it even goes as far as to assume that there are going to be like, you're going to kind of open things up and then things are going to start to spike again. And then you're going to probably going to have to lock it down for at least some period of time. Like that it's, it assumes that for the foreseeable future, we're going to be moving in and out of these periods of like widespread mandatory and enforced social distancing. And then back into a period of like a more open economy. And you're going to kind of have to get used to fluidly moving in and out of those spaces. Um, and, and Ezra brought up this point and I think it's, I think it's very it's very critical to, to think about that assumes one that 
political leadership is willing to acknowledge that's necessary. Two, it assumes that political leadership like is going to have the stones essentially to like do that. And three, it assumes that people are going to be willing, like that that the populace is willing to accept that. And I think that all of those are pretty risky assumptions. Um, Especially for, as we see all of these um, rallies and protests happening and we haven't even gone into some of these ideas. So. And then the the fourth thing, <laughs> the fourth thing. There's there's several issues, and again, these aren't just me. Like these are even things that Doctor Doctor Gottlieb brings up. Listening to listening to the interview with him, um, there is a real, a very real question about whether or not seven hundred fifty thousand tests nationally per week is a sufficient number of tests, right? Um, and he even made, I think, a couple of references during the interview to like 750, like three quarters of a million tests nationally, like a day, as maybe more like what we would want to shoot for, which is significant, right? Like that's like an order of magnitude larger. So there, there are real questions about whether or not um, whether or not that is a sufficient level of testing, even for this plan. And then the final thing, and this is what like, I just have a lot of questions about, <laughs> They emphasize the need for what's called contact tracing. So part of this plan would be, right, like, Andy, like, you get sick with coronavirus, like, we notify the health department, and then somebody at the health department needs to call you and be like, all right, we need to know everybody that you've talked to in the last week because they need to get tested too. Um, They are, because I think they're a conservative-leaning think tank, they are very, very wary of the government getting too much personal information about who you are and where you've been and who you talk to and what you do and who your contacts are. They they emphasize the need for contact tracing, but essentially like the contact tracing should be entirely voluntary and predicated on the cooperation of the person who tests positive. Their answer to that, though, is that you then, because you're the person who has the disease, would have to undergo some degree of enforced social isolation, right? So like we would put you in your house and you're not allowed to leave your house and we're going to use either public health officials or like an app on your phone or an ankle bracelet or the police, like all of those would be options to make sure that you stay there for 14 days until we decide you're well enough to leave again. Um, And man, I have a hard time envisioning people in Oklahoma going for that. Well, and Scott, not even just going for it, but for that scenario and even like increasing the number of tests that we need, you brought up a great point before that do we even have the capacity to do that, right? Um, Many of our agencies um, are struggling already to fulfill capacities of whatever needs and first responders. And so if we were to even need to take that step, not only is there not um, public opinion favoring moving to those um, solutions, but we may not even realistically be able to, to do it in a way that doesn't undermine um, the safety and security of uh, the other things that are needed in um, our daily lives. Right. And ca- and capacity is something that we'll talk about at the here in just a second because we talked about the other two plans. But the short answer is in terms of in terms of the American Enterprise Institute plan, we probably have the capacity in terms of test kits, um, logistics and supply chain 
to do testing at the level the American Enterprise Institute recommends. I don't know that we have, at least in the Oklahoma Public Health, the Oklahoma Department of Health right now, I don't know that whether, whether we have the capacity to do contact tracing at the level that they recommend. And I don't know that we have the capacity to do um, even a partially enforced isolation protocol. Right. Um, so moving to the Center for American Progress plan. Um, so uh, this is the one that's, you know, this is a more progressive or liberal, if you want to use that term, think tank. Um, they recommend that there's this 45-day national lockdown. And after the 45-day lockdown is over, their criteria to move to phase two, the monitoring phase, is um, you can, first they would say, you can move to phase two if testing and hospitalization, like that capacity has been developed. Now for them, that capacity looks at really massive testing, and they specifically reference testing on the level of South Korea. So they would say any individual with a fever, every household member of anyone who tests positive, screening clinics at public health centers and drive-through centers, surveillance testing to monitor for new outbreaks and asymptomatic persons who are positive. So when when they're talking about uh, the, the level that they're talking about testing at, they're talking about 7,971 tests per million people, right, per day. Okay? So, so we were just talking a few minutes ago about 2.2 thousand tests per million people per week. They're talking about uh, they're talking about seven thousand nine hundred seven thousand nine hundred and seventy one tests per million people per day. Um, that comes out to two point six million tests per day um, every day nationally. For a point of reference, right now the U.S. has averaged one hundred fifty one thousand tests per day for the last week. So this would be uh, like one and a half, uh, uh, like a hundred, a hundred, not a hundred, 10, 10, 15 times. Yeah. 10 or 15 times what we're doing now. Um, they also recommend serology testing for immunity in terms of an isolation protocol. So they would actually recommend um, much more uh, stringent and mandatory contact tracing. So like if you test positive, there's an app that gets put on your phone and then the public health, you know, the public health uh, uh, agencies are going to use this app. And this is what has been done in South Korea to essentially trace all of your contacts. Your phone is going to ping any other phones it's been come on with, um, come into contact with. Um, it's it would be a very a, a level of sophisticated kind of monitoring that doesn't exist in this country right now, um, and that I think would be difficult for people to accept. Um, and that's not even talking about trying to develop the supply chain and logistic capacity to test two and a half million people all across the country every single day. Um, the third, we're going to skip the Harvard plan because it's really essentially the same as the Center for American Progress in a lot of important ways. The third plan by, by Paul Romer um, that I think is really interesting um, is arguably the simplest, um, but by no means the easiest. So, um, he says that you would continue social isolation until we have enough testing. Um, in Paul Romer's mind, what is enough testing? Uh, you would test everyone, and everyone means the entire U.S. population, roughly every 14 days. Um, we would require at least um, 22 million tests per day, potentially as many, as many as 35 million tests per day. And this would continue until we have an effective treatment option. Um, and now... 
once we have that level of testing capacity, essentially everything could go back to normal because we'd be surveilling the entire population for a new outbreak every two weeks. So the Romer plan is the biggest moonshot in terms of like supply chains and logistics and like developing the testing capacity. But if you do that, normal goes back to like life as we know it essentially immediately. It is so overwhelming to me, right? Like the, the scenarios that lay before us and the uncertainty and, and what's going to happen. Like, there's a lot of ways this could go right. There's a lot of ways this could go wrong. Um, you know, one thing that Scott, uh, I think we kind of touched on, but but glossed over to talk about these plans is that the um, a lot of the focus has been on testing people. Like here in Oklahoma, the focus has been on testing people who are symptomatic, even though last week and the week before, the thing that dominated <laughs> was the fact that a huge chunk of infections come from people who are not symptomatic, right? So until, it seems to me that until we start testing people who, like just testing everybody more broadly to find out if they have it or not, that we're not, we're never going to be ahead of this. We're going to always be playing catch up to someone who's been infectious for a week or two and has been out there spreading it and you can never you can never get ahead right like the early detection is key and we're always doing late detection that seems like the wrong way to do it yeah i mean that's that's a hundred percent that's a hundred percent accurate and this is why like of these three things i'm a fan of the romer plan right like it does like the the romer plan only requires like new you know technological advancements in terms of maybe building you know developing new supply chains and building, you know, factories, like the Romer plan is stuff that we know how to do, but it's doing it on a scale that we've never before attempted. Um, and, and, and so it's a, it's like, it's kind of a moonshot in that sense, but it's also like, it's not dependent on like, there's no go back into lockdown, come out of lockdown, go back into lockdown, come out of lockdown. There's no, like put an app on your phone and, you know, let everyone know where you are forever. There's no like, oh, you tested positive for this disease. Like we're going to put an ankle bracelet on you. Make sure you don't leave your house for two weeks, right? Or longer because you can, you could be symptomatic with this infection for three to four weeks and not be in the hospital, right? Like there's, I have patients that, that, that are in that situation. And so this is it like, like to me, this is a, like, that should be the, the answer, at least the one that's most attractive because it's something we know how to do. We just have to figure out how to do it at a scale that we've never done it before. Um, and we have people that are really good at that. Right. Like, like, um, right. And honestly, it may be the cheapest. The cost estimate for the rumor plan is like a hundred billion dollars, which is a lot of money, but the economy is losing 350 billion a month right now. Right. Like, like, and that's one thing that I think doesn't get said enough is that like, you know, there's a lot of like Twitter and Facebook chatter about like, how all these scientists and doctors and like public health people, they just don't care about that. Everyone I know, no matter what side of the aisle they're on is desperate for this to end because we cannot sustain this level of in economic inactivity for like 12, 18, 24 months, which is how long it's going to take to have a vaccine in all likelihood, which is when this is, and a vaccine is when this is like over to the extent that it's over. Right. So like we need a sooner answer. So like, 
we can we can work on something new or we can take what are like half measures which is what i really feel like the american enterprise institute plan is it the aei plan is half measures for the sake of trying to do something now rather than like putting all of our eggs in the basket of something that like is truly manageable for the long term even if it's a little bit harder problem to solve um and going to take a little bit longer so uh anyway that's you know, we're like at almost our whole time now and we've, it's mostly just been me talking. Um. <laughs> well, Scott, and, and before we get off this topic, I just wanted to add, um, it is also about how we message things to the American public. Uh, I think a lot of times, especially over the past nearly two months, um, there's been a lot of fear and uncertainty. And I think Americans really embrace um, consistency. And so if the uh, plan from The Economist that you were discussing brings a level of consistency that doesn't cause us to go from fire to non-fire, fire to non-fire, you know, every other week, um, I think it's right. something that Americans could potentially get behind. Right. Right. Like it's an, it, it, you know, it would, it would, I think, manage this in terms of hospital capacity. It would like, it would. I think that's the way I think that's the way to go. It feels like every week there's so much information about this that we're all learning. So Scott, thank you for taking the time to make this. I will put all of this information in the little table that you put into our our doc here. I'll put it into the uh, show notes. So listeners, if you listen to this, if you go to our our podcast webpage, um, it's uh, it's on Captivate. We kind of use their built-in page. And you can read all the show notes in there. It's real handy. Um, that's kind of why we shifted over to that. So um, there's, if you want to print this out and show your friends, I'm sure your spouse would be very interested at the dinner table to talk more about coronavirus. <laughs> um, I mean, who is it, right? Right. All right. Well, let's take uh, a moment to pivot back to Oklahoma politics uh, because it has been quite a week as we were preparing i told bailey here's how long this week has been it was tuesday that the house and senate sued the governor <laughs> and we both were like what that was this week that was um, that's insane that's only yeah that's only four days ago so uh yeah so on tuesday of this week the house and senate filed a lawsuit against governor stitt basically so this is uh the next step right next phase in this budget battle that they've been having that's gone on for has it only been two weeks maybe it's three only weeks been, yeah two weeks only been two weeks holy moly how old am everything, i everything everything's longer during coronavirus april is 500 years long it is. so yeah so last week you know the, the it's probably worth an update right last week the um legislature met it was last monday um so almost two weeks at this point and probably by the time listeners are listening, it's been at least two weeks. They met separately with that whole weird system where they only had 10 people in the chamber at a time. And in between the House and Senate meeting, the Board of Equalization was supposed to meet and declare revenue failure. And they gaveled in and gaveled out, right? Like it, they started the meeting and then immediately ended it, like within 30 seconds, because the governor or someone on his team noticed that the the budget bill um, that had been put out there, the emergency funding bill, um, did not fund his digital transformation fund. And so 
depending on who you ask, it sounds like most people consider the amount of money argued they're arguing over to be about $250,000 into a non-essential fund. Um, the governor says it's more than that, but it seems like still less than a million bucks, a tiny portion of out of $400 million that they were dealing with. And that stalled things out. Now the legislature went ahead, the Senate went ahead and passed all the bills. So all three bills went to the governor's office and he signed one, uh, no sign, ended up signing two. And then said the third one, uh, he was not going to sign. Which was the bill that would actually move the monies from the rainy day funds to the general revenue. It's like he would, he was trying to do a pocket veto, but that doesn't exist in Oklahoma. Right. It's a pocket sign. He got bamboozled yeah. on that deal, right? Um, <laughs> before Signy die. I think it's a pocket veto after Signy die. Isn't it? Doesn't it switch? Right. Yeah. 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 Um, that's a weird system. So, yeah. So in Oklahoma, in order for the legislature to be able to move money from the rainy day fund back into the main account, the general um, revenue fund, the board of equalization has to declare revenue failure and then they can do that. But since the board didn't meet last week and didn't declare it, they can't move the money. They passed the bills. The governor didn't sign it, which means, but he didn't veto it uh, because the legislature said, go ahead and veto it. We got the numbers. Like we can override your veto. So he just let it slide, which is the same as signing it. So it goes into law. And so now they have, filed a lawsuit saying you, you didn't sign it, but you didn't veto it. So it's still into law. And, and now we are, we believe we are legally forcing the board of equalization to meet because the law that is now on the books has passed is that this money has to be moved. And so now we have to have this step of the board of equalization meeting to declare the revenue failure. We all know it's there. The governor said it's there. He just was like trying not to do the thing. This is like arguing with your kids about, you know, who, who, you know, knocked the picture off the wall. It's not me, but they're standing there with the basketball and there's like a basketball print on the photo or whatever. And like, I know it's you, man. Like you just got to do it. Earlier this week, I was on a call um, that had representative Jason Dunnington and he explained it really well. Um, Cause I had the question of should, the Supreme Court not rule in favor of the legislature and the monies remain in limbo, what happens from here? Um, And Representative Denton explained that state services are funded through the month of April. So the legislature would then have to either come back and make a decision on uh, how to make things work to get the governor's signature to then make sure that agencies are funded for May and June, or those agencies would take massive cuts because the money would be sitting there, but it wouldn't hit. It's almost like when you're looking at your bank account and you see like pending, but the money's not actually there, right? And so for the money to actually drop for state agencies to be able to use those funds, um, that board of equalization would have to set that revenue failure. So um, it was, it was really, it's a really unique time, even during a pandemic, 
in the Oklahoma legislature. Well, and, you know, what a weird time that the legislature sues the governor. It's not even the major story. And three days later, we've all since forgotten it, right? Because other stuff's going on. One final note on that is that the Board of Equalization is scheduled now to meet next week on April 20th, right? Um, the governor went ahead and called it. And so there is some question of like, well, does that does that mean the governor's given in, right? Like if, if the legislature was going to sue him to force this meeting and he's going ahead and calling it, maybe it's all going to work out okay. Yeah. Okay, well, let's um, wrap up on kind of one last legislative note uh, that last week was candidate filing for all the legislative seats um, and congressional seats. So everybody in the state house and a third of the state Senate are up for re-election this year. Um, so there's altogether, including congressional seats and a couple other, there's one corporation commissioner seat, um, but altogether there were 146 seats, excuse me, 148 seats that were up for re-election and initially 46 of those were unopposed. Since then, I've seen at least one where an incumbent dropped out and left the challenger unopposed. So that would be 47 of those um, unopposed. And it may be that there's a few extra once all the candidate challenges are worked out, right? So, you know, once someone files for office, someone else can say, can challenge and say they're not eligible because they don't live here or for whatever other reason. And so some of them would get thrown out. So it'll be likely, you know, just shy of 50 or around 50 out of 148 seats. So 100, uh, basically a, a third of the seats are unopposed. Um, that just gave me a migraine. <laughs> It's just not healthy for democracy. Right. I mean, that effectively means people filed for office and were elected on the same day. No votes will be cast in favor or against them because there was no opposition. Right. Now, the last couple of years, this was not the case, right? It was, we had a lot higher number of people that filed. It was upwards of 600. It was a record number. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the last two cycles, right? So 2016 and 2018, we saw in some cases as few as like 16 seats being left unopposed. So a third of what we have here. To what extent do we think that the Rona is influencing people filing and cause right. Cause like, so you can't campaign or at least not traditionally, right? Like you can't, you can't knock doors right right now. Um, and may not be able to for the foreseeable future. Um, you can't fundraise traditionally, right? Because you can't have house can't parties. have more than fifty mm -hmm. people and house parties and whatnot. So, um, I wonder how many people were maybe thinking of running and just aren't because they don't have the infrastructure as a non incumbent and can't build it in this environment, right? Or, or they have another job that was going to help support them, and that job, you know, went away and no longer exists, and they can't afford to run now. I think all those things are definitely possible. Um, and so, so that's, I would imagine part of it looking that's back a someone, small part. Yeah. Someone put on Twitter, like uh, a graph of the number of unopposed seats over the last decade or so or more. And it seems like this number of unopposed seats is 
fairly on par with what it's been for the last 10, 12 years, um, with the exception of the last two cycles, of course. Uh, and so it seems like this is kind of the norm. And certainly, you know, there's arguments to be made that, you know, some of these seats are unwinnable by someone or whatever. But regardless, I, I think, Bailey, to your point, uh, and Scott, too, I feel a little disappointed. I would like to see some democracy in action. And, and as I've told some state representatives who I am friends with and support uh, and want them to win, I still want them to work for it a little bit. Like I, because I think there's something to be said for the electoral process. That's like an iron sharpens iron kind of deal, right? Where it helps you be a, be better, right? You are confronted with um, other people's opinions. You've got to knock doors and talk to voters and it gets you in front of people in a way that you might not otherwise. And I don't want anybody up there feeling like they got a big head because well, no one ran against me. I guess everyone likes me. That's not necessarily the case, right? Which brings me up to one of my soapbox issues, and that is the phrase, vote them out, because we don't vote people out. We vote for someone different. There is no vote of no confidence, right? If you don't like your state legislator, you can vote for somebody else or not vote for them, but there's no way that you don't vote against them. There's not like a no vote, right? That's not a thing. And so if you don't like somebody, you either you got to run against them or you got to find someone to run against them so you can vote for that person. Well, so, Andy, it creates the cycle, right? Um, we complain all the time about low voter turnout, but then we have uncompetitive races and we don't give people an option, which then set, makes them say, why should I vote? Um, so in order to increase voter turnout, we have to give people a reason to want to turn out. And oftentimes it is competitive elections and that's something that we haven't had historically. Um, we've had events that have driven people to the polls. So the teacher walkout, um, the budget situation from a couple of years ago inspired people to turn out to uh, run for office. There are other ways that people can file as well. So that's why I don't know if it's just COVID-19 that made people say, oh, I'm not going to run this year because uh, you could submit your paperwork and mail it in. And um, so there's other ways to be able to file for run for office. I just think we're back into that slum of um, apathy. And so it's how do we get people motivated again um, to run so that we can inspire people to participate. Cause there's a lot of times in previous elections where people are like, nobody has ever knocked my door before. Why is that? Because in your district, your state representatives already selected. So there are no doors to be knocked. And so there's not a reason for that level of engagement, at least with, uh, competitive elections. Um, you're going to hear from folks like in congressional district five, you're going to hear from all kinds of folks because there's a lot of people running in that seat. You're going to hear a lot from um, the sitting congresswoman. Um, and so the more competitive races you have, um, the more you'll hear from people who want your vote and you can be more engaged in government. So we have to fix that problem somehow to make races competitive again, but also um, increasing uh, turnout and participation. Right. And um, yeah, I think, you know, uh, an example, I think of why it's important to even file, right, is 
a couple of years ago, the former Democratic leader, Copeland, right? Like someone filed against him, did nothing, no website, no spent no money, just sat on his couch and won, right? Um, that probably says a lot about that district. Um, but the fact that someone went from being a leader of a caucus to not an office and the other guy didn't do squat is means like, you know what, if you just throw your hat in the ring, right? Like, um, I, I don't remember who that was now, but because that guy's got to be in office and running again, right? Um, I need to go look that up. So hopefully for next week, we'll have a little more analysis. And, you know, we had looked back previously at some historical data for the number of seats that were that never had a challenger, not a primary challenger, not a, a general challenger. And um, it I think Oklahoma is, stacks up higher than some other states. So I'll take a look at that. Um, as a reminder, um, Bailey, you wanted to remind listeners about reaching out to lawmakers during this time? Yes. Uh, this is a great opportunity to connect with lawmakers. There's usually a hierarchy that many folks involved in advocacy use to help people understand the best ways to influence lawmakers. We usually say, you know, visiting them in person and then sending a letter and then doing this and then doing that. And usually social media is at the bottom of the rung, but actually COVID-19 has created a unique opportunity where uh, a lot of our lawmakers on every level, local, state, and federally are using uh, social media and virtual town halls um, more frequently than ever before. And so now is the best time to follow that uh, lawmaker, whether it's at the city council level, um, or your school board member or your member of Congress to follow them on Twitter, get on their newsletters, tune into those town halls, send them messages on social media because all of their time and attention is focused digitally right now because that's the only way that they can um, interact and touch the public. And so this is a great time to even, Andy, you mentioned this, that even getting to know candidates because Social media is going to be the only way that they're going to be able to engage during this time in the outbreak. And so you have a real opportunity to build relationships um, and raise issues that are most important to you because they're using these different platforms. Yeah, we are um, trying to get an email list of candidates. So on the candidate packet, there's a blank for the email list. However, the election board doesn't provide that in the spreadsheet. They just do their home address and phone number. And so I know groups like the League of Women Voters basically divide it up and sit down and call through um, all of these candidates and try to get their email addresses. I don't know why the election board doesn't type them up. Maybe they just don't want to, but um, presumably it's all public records. So we should be able to submit an open records request. It would be really great to be able to provide candidate email addresses so that it makes it easier for folks to contact them in their area. Um, I mean, if their home address and phone number are listed, it seems like email is the the least privacy concerning thing on the list. Um, also, you know, I just think there's, a, especially in this day and age, a lot of reasons to um, to have that out there. In the past, we have tried to, you know, make a list of all the candidates' social media and Facebook pages, and that is without a small army, just not possible, right? With um, a hundred and you know forty or a hundred ish seats that are up. Uh, and each seat, you know, many of them have two or three or six or eight candidates. 
and not all of them, but a bunch of them do, that means it's really hard to um, track down everyone's pages. And at this point, a lot of folks don't have anything. They don't have websites, they don't have Facebook pages. So um, if anyone out there, any listeners want to take this on as a project, if you're stuck at home and want something to do, uh, I'm ha- let me know. I'm happy to help and we can uh, maybe get some interns to help out with that or something. You could also build them like websites and Facebook pages. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you are a campaign consultant or graphic designer, <laughs> now's the time, reach out to them and be like, listen, a good website will help you get a long way in this world. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you, Bailey, for being here. Absolutely. Scott, thank you, sir. Always. Listeners, please don't uh, forget to subscribe and rate Let's Pod This on Apple Podcasts so it helps other folks discover us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Fix This Okay. Scott is at SC Melson. Bailey's at Bailey M. Perkins. I'm at Andy OKC. And like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Let's Fix This Okay. Our website, Let's Fix This Okay.org. Sign up for the newsletter. Find out about things. And uh, make a donation. Help us keep doing this. Um, as this is costing us more money per month than normal because we have to pay for this uh, service to do it from home and get good quality. We are a member of the Mostly Harmless Media Network, and our theme music is Rhino Punk by artist So Down. Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage with the government. We encourage you to get involved in any way you can. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Be safe, everybody. <laughs>